Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Pragmatism and Idealism. Published in 1913 and written by William Caldwell, this story provides a philosophical view of pragmatism and idealism. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to the following iTunes listeners for your lovely reviews in iTunes. Sailor000 from USA. I am glad you love the show. And D Ward B from the USA. I am glad you find the podcast magical. To Audible listener Shannon J. Morris, I'm glad the podcasts help in a time of need. And to the amazing Spotify listeners who took time to leave a response in the episode Q&A, some of the recent comments are from Sophia David Steele, Miss Manda, Aunt Slappy, Paige, and Joseph, and in episode 273, Mama Rolls, Ivy, Sugar, Paige, Joseph, and thank you to all other listeners who left a response on prior episodes. As always, a huge thank you to all existing patrons on Patreon. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone. And it's the support from listeners via Patreon with a financial contribution that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com where you can support the podcast. Whether it is $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. As always, please subscribe, and if you know someone who needs a good night's rest, please be sure to share the episode with them. Another great way to say thank you is to leave a review in your podcast app. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Pragmatism 
and idealism. Preface What is attempted in this book is an examination of the pragmatist philosophy in its relations to older and newer tendencies in the thought and practice of mankind. While a good deal has been written within the last ten years upon pragmatism, the issue that it represents is still an open one. To judge at least from recent books and reviews, and from recent official discussions. And there seems to be a favourable opportunity for a general account of the whole subject, and for an estimate of its significance. In the opening chapter and elsewhere, both in the text and in the footnotes, I have put together some things about the development and the affiliations of pragmatism and of pragmatist tendencies that may not be altogether new to the professional student. Such a presentation, or general conspectus, I have found to be a necessity in the way of a basis for both discussion and for rational comprehension. Taken along with James and his confrere, it affords an indication of the philosophy to which the pragmatists would fain attain, and of the modification of rationalistic philosophy they would fain affect. The chapter upon pragmatism as Americanism is put forth in the most tentative spirit possible, and I have thought more than once of withholding it. Something in this connection, however, is, in my opinion, needed to cause us to regard the pragmatist philosophy as resting upon a real tendency of the civilised worlds of today, a tendency that is affecting us all whether we like it or not. The chapter upon pragmatism and Anglo-Hegelian rationalism is also offered with some degree of reservation and misgiving, for like many of my contemporaries, I owe nearly everything in the way of my introduction to philosophy to the great Neo-Kantian and Neo-Hegelian movement. In its place, I had some months ago a more general chapter upon pragmatism and rationalism, containing the results of material that I had been elaborating upon the development of English Neo-Hegelianism. At the last moment, I substituted what is here offered upon the significant high-water output of Hegelianism, represented in Dr. Bassenquet's Edinburgh Gifford Lectures. In regard to the note upon the pragmatist elements in the philosophy of Bergson, I ought, perhaps to say, that I kept away from Bergson's last two books until I had written out what had been growing up in my own mind about the activism of pragmatism and its relations to idealism. I have found confirmation for much of my own thought in the teaching of this remarkable and significant thinker. 
and I regret the partial representation of it that is here submitted. Having crossed the ocean for the printing of my book, I have in some cases lost or misplaced references that I intended to use or to verify. For this I crave the indulgence of readers and critics. London, September, 1913 Pragmatism and Idealism Chapter 1 Introductory Pragmatism has by this time received so much attention in the reflective literature of the day that any writer upon the subject may now fairly presume upon a general acquaintance with its main principles and contentions. Indeed, it is probable that most thinking people may be credited with the ability to have formed some sort of judgment of their own about a philosophy whose main contention is that true ideas are working ideas and that the truth itself, like a creed or a belief, is simply a working valuation of reality. There are still, however, some things to be said at least in English, upon the place and the meaning of pragmatism, in the philosophical reconstruction that is generally felt to be so necessary today. As far as the external signs of any such vital relation between pragmatism and our recent academic philosophy are concerned, the reader may be aware, to begin with, that there have been many important concessions made to pragmatists by such representative rationalists as Mr. Bradley and Professor Taylor, not to speak of others, and pragmatism has certainly had a very powerful effect upon the professional philosophy of both England and Germany judging at least from the extent to which many of the more prominent representatives of philosophy in these countries have apparently been compelled to accord to it at least an official recognition. Pragmatism, again, in consequence of the different receptions that it has met with at the hands of its friends and its foes, has undergone various phases of exposition and of modification, although it has not yet, nor is it on the whole likely to have, a philosophical output comparable to that of idealism. It has become more and more conscious of its own affiliations and relations to older and to broader doctrines declaring itself in the hands of Professor James and his friends. And it has succeeded, in a measure, in clearing itself from liability to the superficial interpretation that it met with a few years ago, when it was scoffed at for teaching that you may believe what you like, for speaking, for example as if the theoretical consequences of truth were not to be considered, as well as the practical. 
although still resting in the main, upon an outspoken declaration of war against rationalism. It is no longer blind to the place and the value of thought or the concept in the matter of the interpretation of our experience. Pragmatism as the theory is generally understood rests in the main upon the work of three men, Professors James and Dewey of America and Dr. Schiller of Oxford. The fact, along doubtless with other things, that these men have here now been spoken of as occupying a right, a left, and a centre in the new movement is presumably an indication that it has already received its highest theoretical expression, presumably in the California pamphlet of Professor James, or in the famous Popular Science Monthly article of Pierce, canonised as the patron saint of the movement by James. Whether this be so or not, it has been in the main the work of James to set forth the meaning of pragmatism as a philosophy of everyday life, as the theory of the attitude of man, as man to the world is which he finds himself. Dr. Schiller, again, it is claimed, has done much to set forth pragmatism to the world as an essentially humanistic philosophy, recognising and providing for the rights of faith and of feeling in determining our beliefs and our theories about things. This philosophy has much in common with what in other quarters is called personalism. It cannot, however, be differentiated so sharply as Dr. Schiller apparently would have us believe from the many manifestations of this philosophy that abound in modern times. The ingenious Professor Dewey, moreover, is the champion of the scientific or the empirical or the instrumental method in philosophy and has worked hard and successfully at the reform which he thinks must take place in logical and philosophical conceptions when interpreted as simply tools or devices for the economy of our thought. When in pragmatist fashion we seek to judge of pragmatism by its last mentioned matter of its results, by the things it has enabled its advocates to accomplish, we find that we may, to begin with, speak in the following terms of the work of Professor James. He has certainly indicated how the pragmatist method may be applied to the solution of some of the ordinary difficulties of reflective thought about, for example, the nature of matter or the nature of the soul, or about the old proposition between the one and the many about such concepts as things, kinds, time, space, the fancied, the real, and so on. In all such cases, an answer he holds is obtained by putting, say, the initial difficulty in the following form.
What practical difference can it make now that the world should be run by matter or by spirit? A fair illustration of his meaning here would be his own characteristic attitude. So far as the philosophy of religion is concerned, to the so-called theistic proofs that have been part of the stock in trade of rational theology. A necessary being and a whole of truth and the absolute are not, he would hold, what the average man understands by God. They have hardly any perceptible effect upon life and conduct. The all-important matter in the thought of God as he conceives it. Only those notions he would have it, which can be interpreted by the thought of the difference they make to our practical conduct, are real notions at all, providence, say, or God, as the guarantor of the reality and the permanence of the moral order, and so on. The soul again he would hold, is good for just so much and no more. And a similar thing too would be true about Berkeley's matter or about the matter of the materialists. This latter, for instance, cannot possibly do all it is claimed to be able to do in the way of an explanation of the order of the world and the phenomena of life. Then again, James has written a great many pages upon the so-called deeper view of human nature as inclusive of will and emotion in addition to mere thought, taken by pragmatism in comparison with that entertained by rationalism. We shall have occasion to return to this point. He has made it clear too that it was an unfair interpretation of pragmatism to take it as a plea for believing what you like, as was said above. Our experience, he puts it, must be consistent, the parts with the parts, and the parts with the whole. Beliefs must not clash with other beliefs, the mind being wedged tightly between the coercion of the sensible order and that of the ideal order. By consequences too, he contends we may mean intellectual or theoretical consequences as well as practical consequences. He has also, along with his brother pragmatists, raised the question of the nature of truth, attaining to such important results as the following. There is no such thing as pure truth or ready-made truth. The copy theory of truth is unintelligible. We shall later be obliged to examine the more controversial positions that truth is not an end in itself, but a means towards vital satisfaction. Truth is the expedient in the way of thinking, as the right is the expedient in the way of acting, and so on. Further, Professor James finds that pragmatism leaves us with the main body of our common sense beliefs. Pierce holds practically the same thing, such as the belief in freedom, 
as a promise and a relief, he adds, and the belief in the religious outlook upon life, in so far as it works. This is the attitude and the tenor of the well-known books on the will to believe and the varieties of religious experience. Our acts, our turning places where we seem to ourselves to make ourselves and grow are the parts of the world to which we are closest, the parts of which our knowledge is the most intimate and complete. Why should we not take them at their face value? And yet, as against this attitude, Professor James elsewhere finds himself unable to believe that our human experience is the highest form of experience extent in the universe. It is the emergence of many such incoherences in his writings that gives to his pragmatist philosophy of religion a subjective and temperamental character and makes it seem to be lacking in any objective basis. If radically tough, the hurly-burly of the sensible facts of nature will be enough for you and you will need no religion at all. If radically tender, you will take up with the more monistic form of religion, the pluralistic form, that is, reliance on possibilities that are not necessities, will not seem to offer you security enough. He inclines, on the whole, to meliorism treating satisfaction as neither necessary nor impossible. The pragmatist lives in the world of possibilities. These words show clearly how difficult it is to pin down Professor James to any single intelligible philosophy of belief. If belief be interpreted as in any sense a commerce of the soul with objective realities, as something more than a merely generous faith in the gradual perfection or betterment of human society. Religious experience, as he puts it in his pluralistic universe, peculiarly so-called, needs, in my opinion, to be carefully considered and interpreted by everyone who aspires to reason out a more complete philosophy in this same book, it is declared, however, on the one hand, that we have outgrown the old theistic orthodoxy, the God of our popular Christianity being simply one member of a pluralistic system, and yet, on the other hand, and with equal emphasis, that we finite minds may simultaneously be conscious with one another, in a supernatural intelligence. The book on the meaning of truth seems to return, in the main, to the American doctrine of the strenuous life as the only courageous and therefore true attitude to beliefs, as the life that contains in the plentitude of its energizing the answer to all questions Pluralism affords us, it openly confesses, 
no moral holidays, and it is unable to let loose quietistic raptures. And this is a serious deficiency in the pluralistic philosophy which we have professed. Professor James here, again, attacks absolutism in the old familiar manner, as somehow unequal to the complexity of things, or the pulsating process of the world, casting him upon the philosophy of experience, and upon the evident reality of the many, and of the endless variety of the relations of things, in opposition to the abstract simplicity of the one, and the limited range of a merely logical or mathematical manner of conceiving a reality. The essential service of humanism, as I conceive the situation, is to have seen that, though one part of experience may lean upon another part, to make it what it is in any one of several aspects in which it may be considered. Experience as a whole is self-sustaining and leans on nothing. It gets rid of the standing problems of monism and of other metaphysical systems and paradoxes. Professor James exhibits, however, at the same time a very imperfect conception of philosophy, holding that it gives us in general no new range of practical power, ignoring, as it were, the difference between philosophy and poetry and religion and mere personal enthusiasm. And he leaves the whole question of the first principles of both knowledge and conduct practically unsettled. These things are to him but conceptual tools and working points of departure for our efforts. And there seems in his books to be no way of reducing them to any kind of system. And he makes, lastly a most unsuccessful attempt at a theory of reality. Reality is to him sometimes simply a moving equilibrium of experience, the flux we have already referred to, sometimes the fleeting generations of men who have thought out for us all our philosophies and sciences and cults and varied experiences and sometimes the common-sense world in which we find things partly joined and partly disjoined. It is sometimes, too, other things even than these. In a chapter of the book Upon Pragmatism, it is stated in italics that reality is, in general, what truths have to take account of, and that it has three parts, 1. The flux of our sensations, and 2. The relations that obtain between our sensations or between their copies in our minds, and 3. The previous truths of which every new inquiry takes account. Then again, in a pluralistic universe, it is declared that there may ultimately never be an all-form at all.
that the substance of reality may never get totally collected, and that a distributive form of reality, the each form, is logically as acceptable and empirical and probable as the all form. This is the theory of the outspoken radical empiricism, which is the contention of the volume upon the meaning of truth, the main effort of which seems to be to show again that the world is still in the process of making. It has the additional drawback of bringing pragmatism down not only to the level of radical empiricism, but to that of common-sense realism or dualism, the belief in the two independent realities of matter and mind, and to that of the copy theory of truth, from which both pragmatism and radical empiricism are especially supposed to deliver us. I will say here again, for the sake of emphasis, that the existence of the object is the only reason in innumerable cases why the idea does work successfully, both Dewey and I hold firmly to objects independent of our own judgments. Much all this is, no doubt, like surrendering philosophy altogether. In the case of Dr. Schiller, we may notice first his frequent and successful exhibition of the extent to which human activity enters into the constitution not only of truth, but of reality, of what we mean by reality. This is interwoven in his books with the whole philosophy of truth as something merely human, as dependent upon human purposes, as a valuation expressive of the satisfactory, or the unsatisfactory nature of the contents of primary reality. It is interwoven too with his doctrine that reality is essentially something that is still in the making, something that human beings can somehow remake and make perfect. Then this position about truth and reality is used by him, as by James, as a ground of attack against absolutism, with its notion of a pre-existing ideal of knowledge and reality, as already existing in a super-sensible world that descends magically into the passively recipient soul of man. There is no such thing, he claims, as absolute truth, and the conception of an absolute reality is both futile and pernicious. Absolutism, too, has an affinity to solipsism, the difficulties of which it can escape only by self-elimination. Then, absolutism is, Schiller continues, essentially irreligious, although it was fostered at first in England for essentially religious purposes. It has developed there now at last, he reminds us, a powerful left wing, which as formerly in Germany, has opened a quarrel with theology. 
in absolutism, the two phases of deity, God as moral principle and God as an intellectual principle fall apart. And absolutist metaphysic has really no connection with genuine religion. Humanism can renew Hegelianism by treating the making of truth as also the making of reality. Freedom is real and may possibly pervade the universe. All truth implies belief and it is obviously one of the merits of pragmatism to bring truth and reason together. Beliefs and ideas and wishes are really essential and integral features in real knowing, and if knowing as above really transforms our experience, they must be treated as real forces, which cannot be ignored by philosophy. Against all this would-be positive or constructive philosophy we must, however, record the fact that the pragmatism of Dr. Schiller breaks down altogether in the matter of the recognition of a distinction between the discovering of reality and the making of reality. And despite the ingenuity of his essay in the first edition of Humanism Upon Activity and Substance, there is not in his writings any more than in those of James any coherent or adequate theory of reality. And this is the case whether we think of the primary reality upon which we human beings are said to react in our knowledge and in our action, or of the supreme reality in God's existence, of which such an interesting speculative account is given in the essay referred to. Nor is there in Dr. Schiller, any more than in James, any adequate conception, either of philosophy as a whole, or of the theory of knowledge, or of the relation of pragmatism as a method. It is modestly claimed to be only such, but the position is not adhered to, philosophy as such. And as far as the future is concerned, systems of philosophy will abound as before, and will be as various as ever, but they will probably be more brilliant in colouring, and more attractive in their form, for they will certainly have to be put forward and acknowledged as works of art that bear the impress of a unique and individual soul. The main result of pragmatist considerations in the case of Professor Dewey is perhaps that reconsideration of the problems of logic and knowledge in the light of facts of genetic and functional psychology, which has now become fairly general on the part of English and American students of philosophy. It is through his influence, generally, that pragmatists seem always to be talking about the way in which we arrive at our beliefs, about ideas as instruments for the interpretation and arrangement of our experience, 
about the passage from cognitive expectation to fulfillment about ideas as plans of action and mental habits about the growth and the utility of the truth about the instrumental character of all our thinking about beliefs as more fundamental than knowledge and so on and that concludes tonight's readings I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope you're feeling drowsy. Until next time, good night.